Hello and welcome to the Synopsis Podcast. I'm Sam. And I'm Michael. And today we're mixing things up and taking listener questions that have been submitted to us. Throughout the past couple episodes, we've been soliciting your guys' questions. Uh, If you want to get in the next mailbag, please send us an email at thesynopsispodcast at gmail.com. But today we're going to be answering a couple of these, uh, you know, that you guys have sent over. This is something that I'd like to do a lot more often if possible. So uh, anything that you guys have on your mind that you think we might be able to answer, go ahead and shoot us over a question at the synopsis podcast at gmail.com that's the synopsis podcast at gmail.com synopsis with an i like it is in the title so uh with that out of the way why don't we get right into it uh sam what's the first question out of the mailbag so the first question out of the mailbag is from Mark, and he asks, what are the cultural effects of U.S. businesses being beholden to the CCP? And for those of you who are unaware, this question seems to be referencing a couple of uh, pretty high-profile events that have occurred this year um, where U.S. businesses were very explicitly catering to the wishes of the CCP. Uh, perhaps the best-known of these examples that we're going to bring up pertains to the Houston Rockets manager, Dennis Morey. During the whole national security law implementation uh, in Hong Kong, he uh, retweeted an activist saying, essentially, you know, stand with Hong Kong, liberate Hong Kong, that sort of thing. Uh, And the CCP did not take very kindly to this at all. For those who are unaware, the NBA is really big business in China by, you know, by a country mile, it outstrips the NFL, NBA, uh, NHL, all these sorts of other, I think it's like actually might be, might do more viewership than all of the rest of the other American leagues combined. It is... Um, <clears throat> they make the a NBA, substantial amount of the revenue from China. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that, that's the point. Um, the NBA is big business in China. And so um, so to take like even one more step back, the thing you have to understand is that, you know, say in, in the United States, the rest of the Western world or whatever, um, you know, a country, excuse me, a company does something that uh, is disapproved of, you know, like it's too environmentally unfriendly or, you know, employs bad labor practices or whatever, uh, you know, a typical consumer response is individual boycotts. You know, you're going to band together, get a, you know, maybe sign an online group, say, okay, we're not going to buy products from these guys, et cetera. Um, you know, that sort of stuff. But it's obviously very different in China where the CCP can basically turn on and off the spigot in terms of a company's ability to do business within China. And as we just said, uh, the NBA is big business in China. And after this tweet, the CCP explicitly threatened not just the Houston Rockets, but the entirety of the NBA with uh, disbarment of being able to do business in China. So I think most people listening are probably aware that censorship and the Chinese Communist Party go hand in hand quite often. Uh, And it's one of the things that you have to submit to as a business that wants to enter the Chinese market. You have to agree to not put anything out there that the CCP would disagree of. The and and that's, I think, all well and good for most people. A country can do what they want within their borders. It's when they start imposing their will on products that are being consumed on the American market that we start to get a little less comfortable. Yeah. So, so uh, to, to put, a, put, put, put an example to that, um, <clears throat> you know, it's one thing like in movies, when movies are ex- you know produced in Hollywood and exported abroad, oftentimes, um, you know, particularly 
you know, some countries will censor certain elements of it, like remove nudity, et cetera, whatever, in order to align the movie more with the country's value. That's all well and good, but there is a marked difference between that and the level of influence that the CCP has able to uh, gain within Hollywood. For instance, there was the um, remake of Top Gun, and in the original movie, uh, the main character had a Taiwanese flag on his jacket, you know, representing, uh, you know, service in, in, a, in a conflict there. And in the, the 2020s uh, remake, um, <clears throat> that, that patch was removed entirely, including in the American like costume set. So it wasn't like removed like through CGI after the fact or post-production or whatever, but like the actual original shot made in America by American actors in Hollywood, et cetera, chose to remove this Taiwanese flag because that was a major uh, point that upset the CCP with regards to this movie. And, uh, and movies also, um, you know, like the NBA, do, American movies can do really big business in China as well. The way this censorship tends to happen, uh, for clarity, it, because this question originally asked about the long-term cultural uh, implications of this, I don't see this having a substantial impact on American culture. I really don't because A, I think people see through it and B, they're, they're watching for it. And C, it's not really what China's doing. They're, they're not, they don't actively seek to force companies to put out this like positive image of China. They, they mostly just seek to curtail the negative uh, portrayals of China. Like, for example, there aren't a whole lot of Chinese villains in Hollywood anymore. There was this remake of Red Dawn uh, that came out a few years ago where the bad guys were originally supposed to be Chinese, and it was kind of funny because they had completely finished the movie, and <laughs> the you know the, the Communist Party in China objected, and they had to go back and redo everything so that the bad guys were suddenly North Korean, which... <laughs> <laughs> Oh yes, no. North Korea is going to like invade and occupy the whole United States. Yeah, yeah that's a plausible. That's a plausible. Kind of, kind of uh, yeah. yeah, kind of ruins the movie. Um, there are a few other juicy examples I'd be remiss not to bring up because I like them. Uh, so like when um, the most recent trilogy of Star Wars movies came out in China, they removed John Boyega's character, that being the the uh, the black guy in the movie. They removed his character from the poster in China <laughs> because I guess <laughs> for some reason that's bad or they just don't, it doesn't jive with their market. I don't know. So they yeah. basically took the exact same poster that we had, but but edited John Boyega out. Yeah. Um, you know, and this sort of, to tie that back to the NBA in a little bit, it's not like a lot of the country, the companies that we're going to list have major objections to being outright political, you know, particularly within the domestic U.S. context. Like, you know, it's hard, you can't get like Hollywood in general to shut up about what they believe, you know, but when it comes to voicing discontent with uh, policy abroad, you know, such as like the uh, oppression of Uyghur Muslims in China, you know, this free Hong Kong sort of stuff, then, the, you know, they're very happy to tamp down and say, oh, no, no, we don't want to make a political statement. Um, you know, a great example, again, being the NBA, you know, whatever you think of it, the, you know, p- pasting uh, Black Lives Matter, et cetera, you know, on all your jerseys, et cetera, that, that's a political statement. You know, you can agree with the group or not or whatever, but that's obviously political in nature, you know, but... Um, <clears throat> Right, you know, so everyone was, was supportive of that. But right afterwards, when Dennis Morey tweeted uh, something with you know supporting Hong Kong, that was immediately like the NBA clamped down, and they're like, "Oh, we don't want to be political. That's not part of our mo. We're not, you know, we don't like political statements in our sports." Which you know, if you can see, that's not true. You know, <laughs> yeah. So I guess if I could bring this question or this answer really to a close, I'd just reiterate that I don't see. American culture being massively shifted in any particular way, but I, you know, by the CCP's efforts, but you are going to see a deliberate, um, you're, you're going to see a deliberate crackdown on information going out that might be damaging to the CCP. Any narratives that might like you're 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 de- you're not going to see any movies coming out in support of Taiwanese independence or you know Hong Kong democracy. They're not going to be highlighting what's going on in Tibet or um, 
Inner Mongolia or Xinjiang. I, I guarantee you there have been proposed movie scripts for, you know, Tibetan struggles or the Dalai Lama and stuff, and it's probably been shot down. We might even look back into that and confirm that for you, but I can almost guarantee well, well, that's Well, the I mean, case. you know, in terms of, I mean, you know, an obvious example that, you know, I have offhand and we'll get onto the next question in just a second is, uh, you know, the recent live action Mulan remake. Like that was shot in Xinjiang, like I think partially done via Uyghur Muslim slave labor, mm, like for certain shots. With the same company that made Star Wars. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. You, you know, um, <clears throat> basically it's all about the Benjamins, baby. Um, you know, there's a lot of money to be made by not pissing off the CCP and, you know, a lot of companies are happy to count down. And, and just one more example, I'm going to move off because I'd be remiss not to mention it, but there was, you know, right around the same time as the whole Rockets thing, um, there was a similar uh, sort of scandal going on with Blizzard Entertainment, one of the biggest video game makers out there. Um, you know, a player in a Hearthstone tournament uh, you know, right after he won, he was being interviewed by the caster and they said, do you have anything you'd like to say? And he said, free Hong Kong, the struggle of our generation or whatever the quote is. The, the um, player was that, from Hong Kong, right? Yeah. Yeah. His name is Blitz, uh, his uh, game name is Blitzchung. Um, you know, and that was like totally disavowed by, by Blizzard. He was, his account was banned. He was stripped of his prize money. He was forbidden from entering like Hearthstone tournaments ever again, like total hammer dropped on him. And again, you know, Blizzard is no, is not coy about making domestic political statements when it thinks it will benefit it, um, it domestically. Yeah, as well. it's, so it's, it's Activision Blizzard now, and they've been very, they've been very vocal uh, throughout the summer of 2020 with all the sloganeering that's been going on there in the United States, which you guys are familiar with. I'm not going to bring it up. Um, but when it came to Hong Kong, they drew a red line there. It's worth mentioning they also canned the, uh, the casters that were interviewing the guy at the time. They went, yeah, f- they went of- full blackball on this. <laughs> yeah, it's sort of um, you know, Stalin-esque, like just remove everyone from the picture, whoever opposed <laughs> you, sort of thing. Yeah, um, good way to put it. Yeah, yeah, that's that's good. Uh, do you have anything else we need to touch on in this one? Move on. No, or, um, let's move on yeah. to the next one. All right, great. Um, <clears throat> so for the next question, uh, Karishma asks: Will China be able to take control of Hong Kong and Taiwan? Uh, and I'll get the Hong Kong one real quick because Mike's going to be taking uh, Taiwan. But the answer to Hong Kong is yes, they already have. Um, <laughs> you know, we were we were referencing uh, the national security law earlier um, that ended up passing this year in 2020. And at this point, uh, you know, Hong Kong independence, uh, democracy, any any sorts of these movements are definitely dead on arrival. All of the major um, independence democratic. Uh, agitators have either fled the country, stopped organizing, been arrested, um, you know, and, and there was a great, uh, you know, I read in the newspaper the other day, really great bit, like um, one of the, I forget his name off the top of my head, uh, one of the main protesters was, you know, was essentially, he, he came out and said, oh boy, I'm sure, I'm really happy I got arrested now and only spent one year in prison because I know it would be much worse like in 2021 going forward, so. Yeah, a lot of them have been getting in, going out, getting in, going out. From what I've seen, like Joshua Wong, I think yeah. has been arrested. Yeah, Joshua Wong. Thank you. Yes, thank yeah, you. Yeah, 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 that was his name. Yeah, um, yeah. But for all intents and purposes, the government that is in control of Hong Kong is at least in Beijing's pocket, if not ideologically sympathetic. Um, and you can be, ex- and at any rate, you could be extradited to the mainland for prosecution ex- for extradited. For crimes, yeah. So, yeah, extra. Excuse yeah. me. Uh, yeah. For pretty much anything you do in Hong Kong, so their independence, excuse, their independence is effectively over. So moving on to Taiwan, that's the much more mm-hmm. interesting question. Um, Let me just say right out the bat that we're talking about military control here more than likely. I think that's what this question is getting at. If the United States gets involved at any point in time, it's a a done deal. Like China can't do it. So let's look at let's look at China versus Taiwan more or less in a vacuum. Uh, If China has unlimited space and time, 
they can probably get it done, but they would have to do so through a naval blockade that's essentially going to starve the island out, and then they invade when it's a bit weaker or their political will has been dissolved and they agree to capitulate to certain demands. Who knows what Beijing would be willing to accept? Um, but if you look but, at a map so, of China, it's obviously... Sorry, Jeff. I, I was going to um, bring us to like, what would an assault look like on the, uh, the island other than just a blockade? Well, but you can you can talk about the other thing. First. Well, sorry, no, no. I mean, well, that that factors into what I'm about to go into, and that's that. Yeah, obviously, China far exceeds Taiwan in terms of population and just raw military strength. But having the the thing, a battle is not so much about having the strength as it is about applying that at a specific point at a specific point in time, um, like putting it where you need it, and a. On, <laughs> wow, okay. Um, so Taiwan doesn't have a whole lot of locations that are viable for an amphibious landing. They don't have a whole, you basically need clear sandy beaches in order to get it done. If there's cliffs in the way, if there's, you know, jungle on top of mountains overlooking the beach, that makes it kind of unsuitable. And they can, you know, pre, they, they can set up defenses on those, on those beaches like mines and obstacles for amphibious landing craft like you may have seen at D-Day. Yeah, and, and, and Taiwan has all of that, right? Um, cliffs, jungle, mountains. And yeah, that's what stuff. I'm getting yeah. at. Like most yeah. of Taiwan's coastline is is unsuitable for amphibious landings, or it's just straight up like urban dominated by you know thick city, thick cityscapes. So the, the other big problem is that you know, China has a lot of army, but it doesn't have it doesn't have the uh, amphibious navy craft necessary to land all those troops at the right time, and then like. Let me back this up. China does not have the capacity to land all those troops at one time and then keep that beachhead supplied and fed and sustained throughout the time that it would take to actually take down the island. Like Taiwan does have air defenses. They're getting a lot of stuff uh, from the United States, uh, including fighter jets, anti-air systems. Um, They do have submarines. They do have a Navy. It's like they would have to play these defensively, but yeah, and part of maintaining that beachhead, um, you know, as you and I were discussing before this episode, uh, <clears throat> the Sea of the Strait of Taiwan is actually not really hospitable for that sort of long-term supply line maintenance because it is it's super choppy half the year, right? Yeah, for about six months out of the year, it's not. Yeah, you, you there is a six-month window where China can actually take on these operations, and another six months, the weather makes it impossible or at least highly costly. Now, what an invasion would probably look like is Taiwan actually controls a lot of little islands in the Taiwan Strait between them and China, and China could very easily take those and then use those as bases of operations. Um, But the idea that they are then going to create a beachhead, keep it supplied, and then occupy the rest of the island and control the resulting political fallout. We've seen how that works in other, you know, highly mountainous, jungle-ridden areas like Vietnam slash Afghanistan. Um, yeah, and and again, you know, and just to kind of reiterate what Mike was alluding to, this is without the U.S. involvement at all. You can see how this operation would take a enormous time, and even if the U.S. was slow to react, if we were eventually to come in there, it seems like it would be completely impossible, right? So take, for example, the American experience at Normandy, we succeeded in that amphibious landing, though amphibious landings in general are an incredibly difficult thing to pull off. But at D-Day, we had complete and total air superiority, right? We were able to fly in these big old fat gliders and slow transport planes without them getting shot at by fighters. At this point, the Luftwaffe was mostly tanked, and we also weren't really challenged out at sea. 
And we had completely convinced the German army that we were going to land more or less like in Holland or Belgium, something like that. But we landed way further west in France. So they left their reserves and not their proper full standing army to defend it. So we had a major attacker's advantage at that point in time. And we still got shoot up at Omaha Dog Red and places where they were actually firmly entrenched. Yeah, and I mean, Pacific, think about Saving Private Ryan. Well, Pacific, no, no, sorry, sorry real, real quick, just to interject, like, think about, you know, the opening scene from Saving Private Ryan, how, like, absolutely horrific it is because of, you know, even as Mike mentioned, all the advantages we had still got, to- you know, totally chewed up on the landing. Yeah, I mean, these these types of things require you to move directly into preset defenses by the defenders. And in Taiwan, as I was saying, like, they don't have a wide selection of places where you can actually land, and you can bet wherever China chooses to land on Taiwan, artillery is going to be pre-trained on there. The tanks are going to be ready. There's going to be mines. There's going to be traps. Um, so the landing itself is going to you know, probably result in heavy Chinese casualties. And then even after that, it's a very different question to then keep that army sustained um, because you, know, you, you, could, you could definitely see China losing a lot of its navy in the process because of like Taiwanese coastal defenses, missiles, air forces, all that great stuff. Um, yeah, so if at any time the United States gets involved, let's just leave that to the side because it's, it's a hard no. Then China can definitely not do it. And even if the even if the United States stays out, I don't even think that China could get it done, uh, could accomplish their objectives within the course of a year. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, <clears throat> yeah, so if that was not enough naval information for you, we actually have one more follow-up <laughs> on that subject. Uh, Randy asks, the Chinese Navy, as dangerous as they say, or is it a paper tiger? Um, and get, based on his obvious expertise, I'm going to turn this question over to Mike as well. Yeah, you're flattering. Um, <laughs> so I think the reason this question is being asked right now is because recently the People's Liberation Army Navy, that is the Chinese Navy, uh, became the biggest navy in the world by number of vessels. That's not really the most important metric for a navy, number of vessels, but that didn't stop a bunch of uh, you know, YouTubers and news channels from picking this up and running with it. Oh, China now is the biggest Navy in the world. You know, click my page. So, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, the the traditional metric is usually tonnage though, right? Not number of vessels. Well, I, I, I don't know if I'm going to go as far to say as it's the traditional metric, but it's definitely, I think, more relevant in this case because the United States, despite having fewer, it's because the reason China has more craft is because they have a ton of coastal defense, like corvettes and frigates and stuff. They're primarily worried about um, controlling the space between them and that first island chain, that space between uh, China and like Japan, Japanese islands like Okinawa, Taiwan, the Philippines, but anything past that out into the Pacific, they are woefully unprepared to face the United States Navy, which does not really preoccupy itself with coastal defenses. It's mostly a blue water force for obvious reasons. Um, yeah, power projection, right? Yeah. I mean, China, uh, excuse me. The United States is very good at power projection. China is attempting to get there, but right now they're, they're, fo- they're trying to build their force around an invasion of islands. Gee, I wonder why. Um, yeah. and, and South China Sea. And to that point, they are actually <laughs> on track to become the dominant power in that area in the next 10 years. So that is something to be concerned about legitimately. But the idea that they are then going to challenge the United States out in like Hawaii is just foolish. Um, like, for example, like the big, big, big advantage. When we mentioned tonnage earlier, the United States Navy more than doubles the Chinese Navy in terms of tonnage of seagoing vessels. 
We have and more we'll nuclear sp- submarines. We have more attack submarines. And the big thing is we have more big deck aircraft carriers. We have like 11 full-sized aircraft carriers and a pretty substantial amount of like amphibious attack craft that also like launch he- helicopters and harriers and carry like a smaller payload, but they're still aircraft carriers. Meanwhile, China has two and one of them is like a ex-Soviet design that they got from the Ukrainians. It's like a 1970s model. It sucks. The other one is domestically produced, uh, and they have a third one on the way. But that's it. Yeah, great. Um, anything else you want to add before we move off the sea and into the land? No, since I already uh, rambled about Taiwan and <laughs> the, uh, yes. the air and the Navy. and uh, yes, yes, just, yes. I think you get the yeah. idea. Yes. Uh, Chinese uh, Navy, yes, dangerous. Paper Tiger, well... Depends on the objectives in the theater that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. But, you know, don't be super worried about those headlines you might have seen. Um, <clears throat> all right. So the next question is from Anonymous, and they just simply ask, what happened to Tank Man? Uh, and to answer a short question with a short answer is we don't know officially. There is we <clears throat> there is no definitive record of what happened to Tank Man. And for those of you who don't know, Tank Man is the famous image of this one guy basically coming home from a, the grocery store. You see like two uh, bags on, on both of his hands just staring, standing down, um, staring down three uh, PLA tanks in Tiananmen Square. If you haven't seen Tiananmen Square Tank Man photo, you need to just Google that phrase immediately because... Yeah, I mean, no, get, get educated. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah. You, you should have seen this picture at some point. I have, I have, I have full faith that everyone listening has seen this picture. Um, that is, yes, thank you. <laughs> and by point. the way, it's okay, guys. The, the Chinese Communist Party claims that he is alive, safe, and well. Yeah, um, that's right. <laughs> like, like we said, um, you know, so what's going to be coming next is entirely conjecture. Uh, as, as I said at the top, we don't know what happened to Tank Man. But, uh, you know, in 1997, it was revealed that uh, the CCP had a roving squad of what's known as execution vans, which is just what it sounds like. It was manned by four people so that they, the CCP was able to deliver capital punishment on the go. They would like literally yank people off the streets, strap them in, shoot them up and, uh, you know, dump the bodies in a crem- cremation facility basically. Um, And, you know, a country that is able to put that into effect does not strike me as the sort of country that would let an internationally known political dissident just go off and live his merry life after standing down three tanks. That seems not correct. (laughs) Who knows? I mean, this is obviously, this was back in the 80s. This is back before mass surveillance was a thing to the extent that it is in China today. So who knows if they properly identified him, but I'm sure they tried. And if they couldn't, I'm sure they found a stand-in. So mm-hmm. no one really knows what happened to him. We have no con- confirmation of who he was. We haven't found any confirmation of family members. I mean, I'm sure there's some people that claim to be Tank Man just because, mm-hmm. you know, 1.4 billion people. I'm sure at mm-hmm. least one of them does. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, no one really knows. But I wouldn't – I'm not very rosy in my prediction – yeah. No, I think I think you said it best insofar as um, even if he somehow managed to escape uh, the iron hand of justice, someone definitely took it in his stead. Um, yeah. Anything else? Nope. I think okay. that's it Mo- for me. So moving on, James asks, China's real economic activity, is it as big as they say or have they been inflating their GDP figures? So the very first thing to understand uh, in the context of this question is what is GDP and how it's measured. It's essentially a measurement of the economic activity within a country, understanding that it is in some respects a crude estimate. So you know, I'm not going to go too wonky here, but GDP equals consumption plus investment plus government spending, plus net exports minus imports. So uh, we're not going to get too deep into that, but the important thing to understand is that 
it is, like I said, it is a crude estimate and it can very easily be gamed. So what do I mean by that? Here is a great example. Because I'm a great artist, I go ahead and paint a little picture. Mike, seeing the brilliance of my artis artistic ability, decides that he wants to spend $10 and buy that picture from me. Um, I make the sale and, you know, go ahead. Everyone's happy. Now, <clears throat> you know, on second thought, I actually really want that picture back. So I'm going to say, hey, Mike, would you sell that back to me for 10 bucks, what you gave to me? Great. Okay. And this goes back and forth. Let's say five times. You know, we, we exchange this picture five times, $10 uh, each way. We have just increased GDP by $50, not $10. And again, this I don't want to get too wonky, but that, that, that's a really great example to illustrate how um, easy it is of a number to be gamed. Um, this, this sort of ties into, there's a very famous quote uh, in terms of management, which is, you get what you measure. And boy, howdy do, does uh, the Chinese government explicitly measure GDP, all the way up from the national level down to individual provinces, uh, um, cities, etc. There are explicit GDP growth goals to hit. And given the fact that that number can be gained, gamed, uh, it strikes me as entirely reasonable that there are elements within the CCP that definitely do game that number. If you are, you know, uh, a regional administrator and you fail to hit your targets, you are going to, you know, maybe you're going to receive punishment from the higher ups in the CCP because it's an explicit target. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, there, there have there we've talked even as much about China's real economic growth and how there's been a tremendous amount of it, and, and this is not. To, so to take a step back, this isn't to say that China has not undergone tremendous real economic growth, because of course they have. We've mentioned in previous episodes the huge gulf between the increase in living standards that you have seen. If you're, if you're 60 years old in China, you have seen plots of dirt farms grow up into major metropolises with like 50-foot skyscrapers, metro systems, you know, bustling economic activity, all this sort of stuff. There is definitely real economic growth within China, but to have it um, you know, at the numbers that it's stated especially more recently strikes us as unlikely. I've been rambling for a bit. Do you want to jump in at all or? Well, I mean, to your point about GDP, you could, there's this example in economics where you can literally pay people to dig up holes and then fill them back in. And if you do that repeatedly, all that transact, if you keep paying people each step of the way, that all factors in and counts as GDP growth. Uh, so it does not actually measure value added. It doesn't, it doesn't really measure productivity. It just kind of measures stuff going on. And like to your point about China, one of the big things that they've been doing is this is building crap, like building bridges, building apartment buildings that no one ends up actually moving into. They'll, they'll, they'll create these you know skyscraper landscapes built to house hundreds of thousands of people and maybe 20,000 move in. Yeah, millions. Yeah. No, so or the millions example, of people. Yeah, even yeah. more. So the example um, Mike's referencing is another component of the inflated amount of GDP. So um, to t take a step back, that's a really important thing to understand is that GDP is a measure of economic activity, but not necessarily a measure of increased living standards or real um, improvements in technology or like efficiency or anything like that. You can inflate GDP and still be dirt poor. You know, there's a great um, <clears throat> similar... Similarly, there's a great joke from the Soviet Union, which is, you know, there's a nail factory and they receive a quota from the Central Planning Committee that they have to produce uh, one ton of nails this month. So they go ahead and produce one nail that is one ton because that's easier to do. And, you know, that hits the quota, but it's not necessarily useful. Um, <clears throat> you know, so insofar as uh, ghost cities and skyscrapers and everything, there is kind of this... Uh, unholy iron triangle within the Chinese economy that allows for the production of such. Um, as we mentioned, the CCP 
is very interested in seeing economic growth uh, through GDP. So a, a great way to do that and you know, a way that China's been very ahead of in, is production, manufacturing, uh, creation of stuff, um, and insofar as buildings. So uh, through state banks, they will lend developers uh, loans at you know, favorable terms, interest rates, all this sort of stuff. And so the developers are able to um, you know, secure easy financing to uh, produce the creation of lots of skyscrapers, et cetera. Um, now, this ends up on the consumer, and the individual consumer within China is actually very interested in uh, the in the acquisition of this property for a number of reasons because well, well basically because um, the capital markets in China you know think the stock market bond market etc uh, are very volatile um, you know not really especially to the average investor you know say, say you're, you're in the United States maybe you have a Vanguard account a 401k a lot of people are uh, invested in finance you know even on a very low and this is not really uh, easily done in China because of the wild swings. Most of the companies listed on uh, <clears throat> Chinese stock markets are actually state-owned enterprises without uh, the profit motives that private country companies within the United States, you know, stock market are. Um, so, so, so basically, this, the stock market within China is not a um, attractive uh, piece of investment for the casual investor. So, another, so a very common piece of investment across the world is real estate. Um, you know, and we mentioned this, I believe, on the Belt and Road episode, but the average middle-class family in China, depending on how you measure it, owns uh, two and a half, like two to three properties, which, again, if you think of the average middle-class family within the United States, owns like, you know, maybe one, like you're paying off the mortgage on your single property that you own. Um, so there's this sort of thing where there's demand for real estate as an investment on the consumer end. There's, uh, you know, easy financing and the ability to offload the construction on the developer end. And the CCP is interested in, you know, making this construction possible because they believe that it's the key to their uh, ongoing economic prosperity. Um, so, so again, you can see how all of this stuff sort of plays together where, Yes, there's a lot of economic activity being done in China, but is it all like real in a sense? And that it's hard to know, obviously, because um, you know you're not going to necessarily get economic importers, uh, reporters, you know, in there to be able to accurately measure. But um, you know, you it doesn't strike you me. You can't out. accurately measure it anywhere. I think is the yeah. bigger point here. Like China, China is really focused on measuring their growth in GDP, and as we've discussed at length, that's not a particularly useful metric by which to gauge the strength of an economy, uh, especially with China, which is so you know production and construction focused. Well, um, to just clarify that really quick, it it is actually a very reasonable measurement, but only if you're not like trying to achieve GDP. But growth. is it as big as they say? I think is the question. Um, I mean, again, based on the definition of GDP, yes, it probably is. Based on, like, you know, however you want to define real economic activity, no, probably not, is how I would answer that. And that's um, why but, they have ghost towns. Yeah, exactly. You know, and again, one last caveat, that's not to say that China has not undergone fabulous economic growth over the past, uh, you know, 20, 30 years, because of course they have. You can see that with yourself, like you go it's to Shanghai, It's going to be one of the central points, I think, in the next question that we're going to answer. Yeah, no, that's a that's a great segue. Um, so, <clears throat> the next question is sort of an amalgamation of um, a bunch of different questions we received from listeners, but they're they're all along the lines of why don't the Chinese people hate their government? How can they put up with the CCP? Um, and you know, I've talked I've talked quite a bit. So, Mike, why don't you? I'm sure, your uh, boards are tired. <laughs> um, <laughs> why don't the Chinese people hate their government? Well. The the main thing, okay, I wouldn't say that they all don't. I mean, they're obviously not a single-minded people. Some people are discontent. The majority of people, though, are not. And I think we look at the situation in China, kind of scratch our heads and wonder why there aren't riots in the streets when there's such a blatantly authoritarian regime. Um, the most important thing in this case for, for the people on the ground that live there is if you were living in China in the 1970s, 
you know, you slash your parents probably endured famine, possible homelessness, uh, people that you knew probably died in a political revolution of some sort. Like things were not good for China at the halfway point of the 20th century and a little bit beyond. And to go from that, people living in mud hamlets to cityscapes today, like the amount of economic growth that has happened to China since the 1980s is really hard to overquantify. The, the, the rise in people's standards of living has um, been in China specifically is probably responsible for the, like the big drop in the global reduction of extreme poverty that we keep hearing about. Most of that's owing to China. That's exactly correct. So like you need to understand that like China is aware of what democracy is. Uh, I, I would, I would dare say that they probably understand our way of thinking better than we understand theirs. And that doesn't mean that they think that they agree. Like they don't necessarily think that democracy is a great thing when they've seen what the CCP has been able to accomplish with its unitary rule. Yeah, no, um, that's exactly correct. It really bears repeating that the, despite everything I just said previously, um, you know, the economic progress in China is unbelievable. Like it's, it's growth spurt has been the single biggest in human history, I believe. Um, and you know, for better or worse, the CCP is attributed with that success. And, you know, it's sort of a, if you, if it ain't broke, don't fix it mindset. Like, again, you've seen, like you have not, not, not you're being told, oh, the economy is great or whatever. You have personally seen your standards of living, like shoot up like a rocket over the course of your lifetime. And if that's the case, it's like, what incentive do you really have to wish to change that? Like, yeah, I mean, really, yeah, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Like, I, mean, why it would I mean, really, I think the big answer to this, I think the best answer to this is that people pretty much everywhere, about 80% of them aren't really that interested in politics. They're not really that interested in political theory. They're interested in their lives and keeping their ship afloat. And for the average person in China, you've probably witnessed your government do a pretty good job of doing just that for you. Mm-hmm. Um, it, yeah, to, yeah real, certainly real compared quick. to what was happening when their parents were coming of age. Yeah, real quick, a <clears throat> the single most highly correlated polling question with the electoral success of um, you know a president getting reelected is: Are you better off now than you were four years ago? You know, Ronald Reagan famously put it, um, and that que- that question most highly correlates with whether or not a president is going to get a second term in the domestic context in the United States. So think about that, you know, abroad, same sort of thing. Like the CCP can just pose that, you know, every year, every four years, what, you know, five year, five year plans, <laughs> um, you know, same sort of thing and say, are you better off now? And ever like unanimously, it's going to be yes. Um, yeah. You know, I don't know what's going to happen is that, I mean, China has to plateau economically at some point. We don't really know what's going to happen beyond that, but there is a secondary component and that is the political philosophy that I think the, this person asking is maybe a little more interested in hearing, but, uh, China, Chinese schools teach people to respect the government as like the supreme benevolent arbiter, like basically the head parent, the patriarch of all it's, it's a classic filial piety. Yeah, exa- exactly. Thank you. That's what I was going to say. Um, you know, and that, that sort of idea runs very deep uh, within Chinese culture, um, you know, to, to the likes of Confucius, which wrote a lot about familial piety and you know, respect the old. And yes, obviously, um, as Mike was saying, this, you know, the schools and propaganda apparatus at large have done a really good job as placing uh, the CCP as the, f- the father of fathers, like the head of everyone's family, in a sense. Um, yeah. And, you, you know, another, another point, um, <clears throat> you know, is that democracy and popular dissent is just not a, it doesn't 
loom as large in the popular psyche in China as it does in the West. Um, we referenced this last episode, but the West more or less traces its intellectual heritage to Athens, its major contribution being democracy, the invention thereof. Um, you know, there has been a lot of stuff going on for a long time in China, but um, democracy was never, was like really never a part of it. It's always been, um, you know, centralized rule from above. So it, this isn't to say like, oh, these people are brainwashed or anything like that, but it's like there is there's very deep like subconscious elements to culture that you can't even understand because yeah. it just runs so it's so deeply ingrained in you and to have that context missing in another country like yeah i think a lot of people would be rightly outraged in the west if a government slightly raised your standard of living but usurped all political authority at the same time while doing so and like if you could hypothetically say that we could uncover that that um yeah i'm sure people would be out in the streets about that yeah, I mean, uh, so that, that's pretty much it. Um, you know, I guess the major answer would be the economics, and the secondary answer would be the culture. Um, you have anything else we need to address in this question, or? Um, yeah, I. So the other thing on the tip of my tongue here is these authoritarian measures that the CCP engages in, things like the Great Firewall, things like the crackdown in Xinjiang or Hong Kong. Are the Chinese people aware of this? Because you may have heard this interesting fact that the majority of people in China have no idea what the Tiananmen Square massacre actually was. Or will um, at least not admit to knowing it. Or at least not admit to knowing it. The fact is, those who do know about it, a lot of them make excuses for it. And they act like you know the chaos produced by the students was in the wrong and the government was right to insert control and see, it's been great. We haven't had any incidents like that since. So the government obviously did something right. Um, <laughs> they make a lot of excuses for this type of behavior, you know, like yeah, I, they, I can they, think, I can real, real quick. I can think of another reason why there haven't been any protests since, but you know, yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. I mean, yeah, there, there's, I would say there's also a lot of political apathy owing to Tiananmen. Like a lot of people see it as purely futile to bother going through with uh, like a mass movement like that threat that threatens the government itself. Like you, know it's going to be cracked down on in the same style um so and and why would you bother doing that when your life is going much better than you had probably expected it would when you were five years old yeah yeah amid all this economic explosion like people aren't going to just throw all that out of the way uh jeopardize their future their children's future to you know overthrow a government that has done a pretty good job be mostly satisfied with from their point of view because they don't because they don't get outraged by the same sorts of things that we do yeah they want yeah. unity and they want stability primarily. Those are like the main Confucian values that I hear echoed uh, and, by and economic growth. Like mm-hmm. again, just repeating. You know, yeah. Um, I mean, there's 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 lo- there's lots of interviews you can watch on YouTube. Just like people on the streets answering questions about democracy and what they think about China. Like a lot of them know about the Great Internet Firewall and they think it's a good thing because it protects people from harmful ideas. Is the excuse they give. But then won't they someone, themselves they themselves will go and use a VPN <laughs> and get on YouTube. Yeah, won't someone think of the children, Michael? <laughs> so yeah, that's yeah. that's my answer. And we, we've talked, you know, a lot about values and like different opinions on democracy and stuff like that. But I really want to reiterate that, um, <clears throat> you know, a lot of that would fall away if things were not going as swimmingly as they were. Like these are all additional, um, like post-fact rationalizations that you can put onto the fact that, like, yeah, I'm I'm, I'm basically doing all right, and here are some other justifications that I can use for a lack of freedom or whatever. But, you know, if China were to enter serious economic turmoil, um, you know, if there was to be, for instance, another great leap forward level catastrophe, I'm not sure the CCP would be sitting quite as peachy as they are right now. Um, You know, and 
And one last thing, and I don't want to really open this Pandora's box and leave, but here we are. Um, <clears throat> you know, the CCP doesn't necessarily think it's totally so secure in its position as evidenced by the rollout of domestic surveillance, um, you know, social credit system, all this sort of stuff. A government that is confident in its ability to not be challenged does not roll out systems like that. Yeah, that's very true. Yeah. Great. Um, <clears throat> so I think that brings us to the close of today's episode. Do you agree? I think that I think, yeah. Yeah, right. Um, so, you know, we want to thank our listeners uh, for tuning in to this very special first mailbag edition of the Synopsis podcast. If you enjoyed it, please let us know. Uh, if you didn't send enjoy us it, also, mail. send us yeah, lots send, of mail. Send us hate mail at thesynopsispodcast at gmail.com. Once again, that's thesynopsispodcast at gmail.com. Synopsis spelled as it is in the show. Um, you know, and if your question is sufficiently ignorant and vitriolic, it will fit right in with the content of the show and we will answer it on air. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Um, So we want to thank our listeners for tuning into the Synopsis Podcast. I'm Sam. And I'm Michael. And until next time, remember, nothing is to be feared, only understood. The Synopsis Podcast is co-hosted by Sam Bach and Michael Williamson. Produced by Mark Fusito. Artwork by Eli Bach. 